I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Uh, Welcome to the Tuesday live stream. Today we're asking the question, does Jesus, based upon his teachings in the Gospel of Matthew, does Jesus want us, who are Gentile believers in Christ, does he want us to obey the Old Testament law? Is the law of Moses something that Jesus wants Christians to follow today? That's the question we're asking, and um, this affects our lives greatly. I mean, it, and I'll, I'll start by just saying this. If God wants me to do that, I want to do it. I'm not opposed to it in that sense. It's like, he's, he's Lord. We do what he says. The question is, what did he say? So welcome to the Tuesday live stream. Uh, I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and I do this live stream usually every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. And we cover things like theology and apologetics, defending the Bible, as well as giving people an explanation of the Bible so they can learn to think biblically about everything. Because that's my goal. I want want to do my part to the best of my ability to help you learn to think biblically about everything, as well as help people to realize that the Bible is true. It is God's word. Christianity is true. Jesus really is Lord. And all that stuff stands up to scrutiny and, um, and rational investigation. So... Today we're talking about the Old Testament. Um, So here's my disclaimer. I love the Old Testament. I love the scriptures. It is the word of God. We should be learning it. We should be trying to apply it into our lives in the proper way and in whatever way, you know, is consistent with the full revelation of the Bible. Uh, But this is part of what I'll call a series now because I have one video on the Hebrew Roots Movement and this is going to be the second one. I'm dealing with this thing called the Hebrew Roots Movement. Again, it's just, it's not a monolithic movement. Hebrew Roots refers to um, basically a a, a sort of scattered, not entirely organized group of people who all fall under the same banner. The basic banner they fall under, as far as I can tell, is that they think that we should be keeping the law of Moses today. And there's a lot of teaching videos online and people going out teaching this stuff, uh, starting you know fellowships and learning how to try to practice the law of Moses. And what do I do? How do I observe the Sabbath? And and you know all these sort of different you know questions about dietary restrictions and beard growth and things like this. That this is stuff that they're dealing with because they believe sincerely believe that they're supposed to be obeying the law of Moses. So I've already dealt with some of the stuff that I would consider um, the more psychological things going on with this movement. And I dealt with the video from a group called 119 Ministries. That was in my previous analysis of the Hebrew Roots Movement. That video was just called, and I'll, eventually I'll put a link in the description below to that video if you haven't seen it. But that video was basically um, when I was just getting started. Hey, I've been looking into the Hebrew Roots Movement. Here's what I found so far. That, that's what I call that video. Well, 119 Ministries, the people who I quoted in that video, they responded to my video. And and I want to first say this. Um, I applaud their kind, brotherly response. I am grateful to have, because I get lots of reputations, guys, <laughs> to have somebody who tries to respond to me and do so in a way that's meant to be controlled and thoughtful and uh, gracious. And I super do appreciate that. And I also applaud even more and a much bigger deal. 119 Ministries took a firm stance on the gospel of Christ in that video. And they said, hey, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from the works of the law. You will be saved by Jesus apart from those things. And they're taking heat from some people in their own circles because they were willing to stand up for the gospel. And I'm grateful for that. God bless you, my brothers in Christ over at 119. Um, is, and as long as I'm under, I don't know everything they teach guys. I, I'm not endorsing that. In fact, here I am. I'm going to try and refute their teachings here, but I'm doing it as a brother. And I'm excited to, to see their response was like that. Now on the flip side, their response to my video, it was 
it wasn't really dealing with the points I brought up in my video. It was more an opportunity for them to share uh, two main passages, Matthew 5 and Matthew 28. They did respond to some of my content, but I don't want to do this back and forth thing because I'm going to lose you guys, okay? I'm going to lose you guys and I'm going to lose my own thought process. This will be a systematic set of videos dealing with the Hebrew Roots Movement, a set of teachings for those listening on podcast. It'll be audio for you. Um, what I'll do is I'll deal today with the words of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus that are a core, core passage for those who are pushing the Hebrew Roots thing, the Torah observant thing. What I'll do in following weeks is we'll look at the book of Acts and the early church, and then we'll look at the epistles. And this might be two more videos or it might be three. We'll just see how it goes. Um, it'll be great content. You don't even need to be aware of Hebrew roots to find this stuff fruitful. This is dealing with how the law is, is uh, interpreted and applied to the Christian life today. So this is like very relevant for us in understanding the whole of the Bible. But I'm going to deal with their stuff today. In particular, um, two key passages. I don't have a video clip for you, uh, but you can go look up 119 Ministries response video to me if you like. Um, here's the two key passages they give. It's Matthew 5 and Matthew 28. And there's a particular way in which they use these verses. So here we go. We're jumping into the content. And I'll just mention, while today's live stream might be a little longer than normal, I will still get to Q&A at the end. If you want to put questions in the live chat, you know, put a capital Q there so we know that uh, in the beginning of your question, so we know it's a question. We'll gather at least a handful of those questions and I'll answer as many as I can at the end. Um, but here we go. There's two main passages that they're using. And this is profound because in, say, 119 Ministries response video, they said that this was key. This was their framework, like the way they interpret these two passages. This is their framework for how they interpret the rest of the New Testament when it comes to obedience to the law. So this is like right at the core. And I will fully admit up front, this is challenging stuff. It's complicated stuff. But I think I have some clarity that I might be able to provide um, that is worth doing this, this teaching on right now. So the two key passages are from Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, and from Matthew 28. Um, their conclusion from these passages will be this. I'll tell you the conclusion ahead of time, then we'll read through the passages. Their conclusion is... Um, that everyone on earth, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, needs to be a follower of the law of Moses, someone who follows the things taught there um, in detail. And this means like dietary restrictions, Sabbath observance, observance, um, the feast days, and everything else you can do to the best of your ability to obey the law. So how do they establish that? Well, they go to Matthew 5 and they go to Matthew 5, 17, where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I isolate that passage. It, it sounds like we should all be obeying the law of Moses. The thing is, it's isolating it. So what we're, we're going to do is we're going to unisolate it and we're going to evaluate it in context. But they focus as they're teaching. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be Hebrew roots for a moment here. I'm not trying to caricature them at all. But what I've heard from them, their teaching goes like this. Hey, look, look at this passage in Matthew 5. Jesus says he's not going to abolish the law or the prophets. He won't abolish them. So you Christians who are saying that we're no longer under the law, that it's, it's been abolished, you're wrong. God hasn't abolished them. We're still to obey them. Um, but then what they'll do is go to Matthew 5, um, Matthew 28, 20, excuse me. And in Matthew 28, 20, um, I'll back up just a little bit. Jesus is saying in verse 18, 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So you could say to Matthew 5, well, that was just to the Jew, right? Obeying the law. But what 119 Ministries and other Hebrew Roots people do is they grab Matthew 28 and they say, oh, no, 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 you're mistaken, Mike, right? Jesus clearly says in Matthew 28 that we should take what he taught and we should tell everybody to observe all that he commanded the disciples. So if he told the disciples to do it, well, then now we should go and tell all nations to do it. That's disciples of all nations. Translated, even Gentiles should now be observing the law of Moses because when you combine Matthew 5 with Matthew 28, you have a, uh, a command from Jesus to go and tell everybody to do and obey the commands of Moses. Now, I'll admit right here, that looks pretty good. <laughs> like, that looks pretty good. That looks pretty strong. And I can fully understand how somebody is persuaded by that. Um, I do think there's several problems with it. Um, and, and, and I don't think it's about necessarily people's hearts. Maybe it's just a confusion about the passage, right? So I'm going to do my best to explain it. Now you understand their perspective. Now I'm going to give a thorough, thoughtful teaching through these two passages today to understand them in more detail. So the first thing that we should notice is this. Matthew 5 and Matthew 28 are in totally different contexts and places and times in Jesus's ministry. That's, I mean, that's not the whole story. That's just an important point to make. Matthew 5 was not said right before Matthew 28 was said. Very different contexts, okay? That's really important for us to know. For instance, let me, let me give you an example. Like, what if I took Matthew 28? Let's tell the whole world to do everything that Jesus said for his disciples to do. And I take that principle and I apply it and I go to Matthew 10. Matthew 10 verse 5. Jesus sent out the 12, instructing them, Go no, nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus told his disciples to not go to the Samaritans and to not go to the Gentiles. Those are two places he told them not to go. Then in Matthew 28, he told them, hey, teach them to do all that I've commanded you. So if I take those two verses in isolation, it sounds like we're not allowed to go to Samaritans and we're not allowed to go to Gentiles at all. But that obviously contradicts Jesus' own statement in Matthew 28, right? Where he says, go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. So now we have Jesus contradicting himself. Well, no, the, the issue here with, I won't get into the story of Matthew chapter 10, but the basic idea is he told them to do something, which when you look at the whole context was not a command that was meant to be carried forward to all people. It was a lesson he was teaching them through a temporary thing he was having them do, which is a lot like the law. So, um, so we can't just take Matthew 28 and Matthew 5 and smash them together and say, therefore, we have to obey. Because if we have that, if we act like that's a consistent biblical principle, then we can't do that with the rest of the book of Matthew. So how can we say we can do it with Matthew 5? I'm not here saying we don't teach people to do what Jesus said. I'm saying we don't uh, take things out of context. So the next thing I want to point out before we get into this Matthew 5 passage in great detail is uh, a few things. Three things in particular about big contextual issues about the law of Moses. Okay, the first is this. The law had a beginning. Um, I mention this because a lot of people, some people I should say, in the Hebrew Roots movement don't realize the law did not exist in the Garden of Eden and it didn't exist after the fall and it didn't exist with Cain and Abel or with Abraham, right? Or with Noah. There's people who did not have the law 
And the Bible tells us this very clearly. So Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 2. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are, who are all of us here alive today. So this is, this is the idea that, hey, the, the people that are, were alive at the time of the giving of the law at Horeb, they're the, the first receivers of this new covenant along with the commands that come into the covenant. Because the covenant, if, in fact, if you do a study on the terms covenant and law, covenant of God, law of God, covenant of Moses, law of Moses, that kind of thing, these are sometimes used, sometimes used synonymously. They're, they're connected. So we're not separating. They're different things, but they're sometimes they overlap. So um, first point is this. The law had a beginning. And the, and the Apostle Paul agrees with this. In Galatians 3, verse 17, we see, we see where Paul explains that the law had a beginning. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. What's he talking about? He's talking about how Abraham... 430 years before, he'd received a promise from God and how that would be fulfilled irregardless of what happened later with the promise of the law or the covenant of the law. So there's 430 years after Abraham, that's when the law shows up. It comes 430 years afterwards. This seems really basic, but one of the reasons I bring this up, and because I need to put this somewhere in my series on um, the Hebrew Roots Movement, so I got, I'm going to do it today before I get into Matthew 5 in more detail. Um one of the reasons I bring this up is because these, in the Hebrew Roots Movement, and I believe there's an article on uh, 119 Ministries' website that talks about this as well. There's the idea that Abraham had the law of Moses, the law of Moses, that Abraham actually knew about it, and he practiced it. And so they get that from Genesis 26.5, which says, Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my, char- kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Well, this is similar terminologies we get in like Psalm 119 about God's precepts and his his commandments and statutes and laws, that kind of thing. But we just got clear indication from Deuteronomy that whatever tw- Genesis 26.5 is talking about, it's definitely not saying that Abraham had the law of Moses because it didn't exist for 430 more years. It's definitely not saying he was under the, he had the covenant that God gave under Moses because it had not been given yet. Their fathers, according to Deuteronomy 5, didn't know about it. Well, Abraham is the father of the Jews. So, we are getting clear indications that there is a beginning point. Now, what that means, though, with Genesis 26.5 is Abraham did actually have some sort of law. Abraham knew about what God had told him to do. And even though it wasn't the law of Moses, it was still okay to call it God's charge, like what God tells you to do, his commandments, what God orders you to do, his statutes, like the principles, the laws of God, moral truth, perhaps, that God has revealed to Abraham when he says, go out, go out of this land, go over here, do this thing, live this way. He does those things, and in that, he's fulfilling God's commandments to him, even though it's not the law of Moses. We get this in other places in scripture, too. Before the law of Moses exists, hundreds of years, thousands of years, long before it exists, we have Cain and Abel, who are aware of sacrifice. We have Noah, who's aware of clean and unclean animals. But he's not aware of the law of Moses, because the Bible's clear that those guys didn't have that. Um, So what's my point with that? It's just to say this. The law had a beginning point. And when it began, it was just for Israel. It wasn't for Abraham. It wasn't for Noah. It wasn't for Adam and Eve. It wasn't for Cain and Abel. And it, and it wasn't for those outside of Israel. So that's, that's the second point. So I'll go to Deuteronomy 4.8 to establish this. Deuteronomy 4.8. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? 
What's the point? Nobody else has got these laws like this. Like this, this law of Israel, it's only known to Israel. There is no other nation like it. In fact, that's what makes Israel peculiar of, of a people, right? A unique people is that they have a unique law that nobody else has. So it was only for Israel. That was the nature of the law. It was a covenant between God and Israel and it was given through the hands of Moses. That's the law of Moses. It comes just to the people of Israel, not to the world. So what about Gentiles though? Some say, well, but but the Old Testament, it says like in, um, I'll bring it up for you. We're going to be going through so much scripture tonight. I hope you're excited. Um, uh, Exodus twelve forty nine says, there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. And they use this. I've seen this used, like people commenting and making even some videos. I think I've seen it on videos. They use this concept in Exodus twelve forty nine to say that, see, the law was for all people. It was one law for whether you're Israel or not Israel. But that's not what it says, is it? I mean, you already see it right there. The stranger who sojourns among you, meaning that as a nation who has laws, they wouldn't have a separate set of laws for, for people who are not part of the Jewish bloodline. If you live in Israel, you live under the Israeli laws. You have laws for all the people. And that's consistent. Uh, and that's just good good law, right? Like that's just good law is what that is. Um, it is not saying that people outside Israel had these laws. The Gentiles outside of Israel, while the ones inside Israel, they, they, they weren't required to do everything in the law of Moses, but they, were, they had the same law enforcement I guess that's a whole other study to look at all that stuff, but they were not required to do everything in the law of Moses. Um, you have to just look at the text, look at the laws themselves. But they were allowed to participate in certain events with Israel, and they were given the same protections of the law as the Israelites were, um, generally speaking, unless there was some specific case where that wasn't the case. So, the Gentiles outside of Israel. Here's the next question, right? We, we, we've eliminated Adam, Eve, Abraham, Noah, all those people. They, they were not under the law of Moses. We've eliminated the 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 um the non-israeli nations and then finally um we can ask the question like what about people who were outside of israel what sort of law were they under what was god's requirement of those people i think that uh, romans 2 12 gives us a hint at that it says for all who've sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who've sinned under the law will will be judged by the law it is it is the um the concept that there are some people who are under the law and some people who do not have the law Romans is making it clear. Now they're still accountable. Romans builds a case for this. Their conscience reveals God's God's law, not Moses' law, but God's law to them. Right? There's the word law is used in lots of ways. So it's God's truth, just like Abraham had God's law without the law of Moses. So their conscience reveals God's law to them. They're accountable for such laws, and they'll be judged according to what they knew, the light that they had. That's what we're getting from Romans 2. And so um, that was to say the law was limited in scope. So when we approach the New Testament, when we approach the New Testament, we're starting from the perspective in Matthew 5 with the idea that the law was just for Israel. They were never told to go into other nations and teach those people the law of God. They weren't told to do this. They didn't do this. And when we actually get uh, Old Testament saints, uh, prophets like Amos, Jonah, Nahum, right? We get these guys going to Gentile nations. They never say that they're messing up because they haven't been obeying the law of Moses. In fact, Amos is a great case in point for this because the prophet Amos, if you read the first chapter or two, I think it's two chapters in Amos, you'll see he he nails nation after nation. He goes, here's the burden of the Lord against you, this nation. Here's God's judgments, judgments against that nation. And he tells him why God will judge them. And, he, and he's like, because you've abused people, because you hurt people, because you didn't protect those you should have protected. 
But then after giving Gentile nations rebuke, it gets to Israel and it says, Israel, you're coming under judgment because you didn't keep the commandments of God. So Israel was under the law. They're accountable for it. Gentile nations are under some other kind of revelation of God's truth, which is a law unto them, but it's not the law of Moses. Complicated stuff, perhaps, but I think it's important that we realize we don't pretend everybody has always been under the law of Moses. This should be uh, obvious, I think. All right. Third big picture point before we get to Matthew. I know this is a lot of stuff, guys, but I think it's important for this concept of the uh, Hebrew Roots movement in particular. The law had an exchange coming. The law of Moses it had an exchange coming. So let me read the passage, and then we'll read a New Testament commentary on that passage. So Jeremiah 31, verse 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So there's a new covenant coming, and it will be unlike the old covenant, which was the one brought through Moses. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, saying, uh, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So we have this, this idea that the law, it comes at a certain point in time. It comes just to a certain people. I've established that with my first two big picture points. And the third point is, and it has an exchange coming where this law will be set aside for another law that will be written in our hearts. It'll be different than the old. Now, some people want to say that the new covenant is just taking the old one and writing it in our hearts, right? It does say he'll write his law within us. But it doesn't necessarily, but we know that the law can refer to the law of Moses. It can refer to whatever law Abraham was aware of. It can refer to uh, various other things in context in scripture. So we'll actually see later in the New Testament, this is the law of Christ um, that he's referring to. So Hebrews 8 verse 13 gives us commentary on um, the meaning of Jeremiah 31. This prophecy of the new covenant. Remember Jesus brought the new covenant in his blood? Well, it comments on Jeremiah 31 and it says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Hebrews being written long after, it, it's like talking about the sort of slow, gradual impact that the work of Jesus, this new covenant was having. And it was now becoming old and ready to vanish away. It was like a, a, a gradual thing. Um, this is a passage I, I haven't heard anybody comment on as part of the Hebrew Roots movement. I'd be interested to hear them comment on it in context. And I encourage you guys for homework, read Hebrews 8 all the way through Hebrews 9. And we'll scroll down a bit and we'll look at um, Hebrews 9 verses 9 and 10. It talks about this covenant and the arrangements of the covenant, like the um, the temple practices and how the, what the priests would do and all that sort of thing. And it says, which is symbolic for this present age, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body. So this is obviously talking about the um, the Levitical law, right? Food and drinks and various washings. So we're talking kosher laws and, 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 and what you can eat and drink and all this sort of thing. Regulations for the body imposed, and this is the key, until the time of reformation. Hebrews 9 is saying that that, that covenant 
which has been replaced, it was only in place until the time of Reformation. It was like a placeholder for the coming new covenant. That's the idea in Hebrews. We might get more into Hebrews in the future. Um, I just want to say in Matthew 5, where we're about to head right now, Matthew 5, 17. I'll bring it up on your, on your uh, screens there. In this passage, what we do not have is anything related to after that new covenant came. We're not looking, we're not looking at the hindsight of the cross. Rather, this is the anticipation. This is the culmination. This is the law has come. It's only applying to Israel and it means something important, which Jesus is about to fulfill. So in Matthew five, Jesus is talking to Jews before the new covenant has come. We should keep that in mind. That's an important contextual thing. So let's analyze the passage and let's look at it in context now. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And we will... Come to verse 20 in a minute. So this is, again, this is from the Sermon on the Mount. um, And there's an important contrast coming right away. Jesus says, I'm not going to abolish it. I'm going to fulfill it. Now, from the Hebrew roots perspective, what I hear them mostly do is they focus on Jesus is not going to abolish the law, which I agree, right? He's not going to abolish the law. But they don't spend a lot of time unpacking the meaning of what Jesus will do when he will fulfill the law. And they often take that word fulfill, plerao, and they have a much sort of minimized meaning of it. I don't know what they think it means, to be honest. They're mostly focused on it not being abolishing the law. Um, as though what we're doing is we're saying, well, he won't abolish the law. So whatever you think fulfill means, don't worry about it. It just means not abolish. Like fulfill means not abolish. But that's that's not the case. Jesus is offering uh, a very careful understanding of his mission in this world. He's come and he's going to fulfill the law of Moses. And guess what that word fulfill? It's not the word abolish. It doesn't mean destroy or reject or set aside. That would be that word abolish. Instead, when he fulfills it, it means he will accomplish it fulfill it or achieve its intended end. It does have something to do with a finality, with with the, the moment of, wow, it's done. That's the idea of fulfillment, especially in a prophetic context. And so here's where uh, in the Hebrew Roots videos I've seen, um, where they, they use the word plerao, fulfill, in non-prophetic contexts to interpret it in a prophetic context. I think that's a mistake, especially when Matthew is chock full of prophetic uses of the word plerao chock full. If you're interested in my Jesus in the Old Testament series, I have a, a, a video on Matthew in particular and the use of plerao in Matthew fulfill and it's it's great. It's amazing stuff. So he's going to fulfill the law's requirements and the law's predictive nature and the question we have to ask in verse 17 is, what happens when Jesus fulfills it? Right? I mean, if you fulfill a prediction that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem I don't look for the Messiah to in the future be born in Bethlehem but what happens when you fulfill a statement in Matthew 5:17 the law is being fulfilled well, what am i looking for now like how how does it apply to me now jesus isn't going to answer that because that's not the purpose of Matthew 5 the purpose of Matthew 5 is the fulfillment not what happens when you fulfill it it's the fulfillment not the after effects the after effects come later we get that in acts we get that in the epistles we get little hints of it in the gospels Um, So I'll move on. Verse 18. 
it says, uh, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So the Hebrew roots response to verse 18 is to say, hey, heaven and earth are still here. And as long as heaven and earth are still here, we're still under the law. That's that's the bottom line, right? The, nothing's going to pass from the law. Uh, but I think... Um, this is a misunderstanding of the passage. I'm going to give you my best understanding of it. There's a chance I might be getting something wrong here. There's always that chance, guys. I'm being honest with you here. This is my best understanding of Matthew verse uh, 5, verse 18. Um, I don't think we should say that Jesus is here talking about when the law will pass away, but how the law won't pass away. How it won't pass away is iotas and dots or these these little marks, little letters and stuff, little pieces of the law will not come off of the law. That is not how the law will be dealt with. How the law will be dealt with is it will be fully accomplished. This is connected to what he said earlier. Earlier he said it won't be abolished, it'll be fulfilled. Now he's saying it's not going to pass away in some piecemeal fashion. I'm going to I'm going to do it. I'm going to accomplish it. That's the idea. He's going to accomplish it. Nothing will pass from it. He hasn't come to partially fulfill it. And if, and if you look at verse 17, the context is Jesus is doing it right now right? I don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he just says, blanket statement, I'm here to fulfill them. He doesn't say fulfill pieces of them, but there's this like sense of totality in the coming of Christ. And while there's things he does in his second coming, then this is important. There's a sense of totality in the original first coming of Jesus Christ, in which he simply says, I am fulfilling the law and prophets. He doesn't qualify it. He acts like it's a blanket statement across the board. This is what I'm doing. I'm fulfilling them. Um, that's really important so that we don't think what I think people do think about this passage is they think, oh, well, if there's if there's a second coming mentioned in the Old Testament and it hasn't happened yet, well, that's a future thing. It's not yet fulfilled. So we're still under the Old Testament law. I don't think that's the point of verse 18 at all. I think the point is you can't minimize, diminish, or take away from the text. Jesus is going to do everything in there. It's all going to happen, the predictive elements of it. That's the point. And this connects to the Pharisees because what he's about to do is he's about to ream the Pharisees because what they did was they got in between people in the, in the Bible, people in the Old Testament, and they altered teachings. They added stuff and they took stuff away. And Jesus is like, that's not okay. That's why in verse 20, he'll rip on the Pharisees. So Matthew, by the way, this is so profound. Whether you agree with me on these issues or not, you've got to see this. Matthew, he thinks... Um, I should say Matthew thinks, I mean, the gospel of Matthew is teaching us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the law itself is not just instructive, it's predictive, that even the washings and the sacrifices and the obedience of, of the food you would eat, they're predictive elements that don't just tell you what to do, but they tell you who Jesus is. That is so profound. This is the thing I think everybody misses in this passage. I'll give you another explanation of this. Um, um, about the idea that uh, um, that Jesus fulfilled in, in the totality the law and the prophets, right? Well, he himself says in Matthew eleven thirteen, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. Now that's interesting um, because he presents like pro- law and prophets prophesying until John and then Jesus shows up and now it's a new thing. Now the kingdom of God is at hand and I'm bringing in the new covenant and he's bringing all this newness to it, you know? But he's like, this is the culmination. Here's Jesus. He shows up. He's fulfilling in, in a totality sense. He's fulfilling the law and the prophets, even though there are future prophecy things they are all still connected to Jesus and the revelation of Jesus we received in the first century. Um, 
let me see where do I go next I'm looking at the clock I'm like wow it's taking a lot longer than I thought uh, but I hope you guys are with me I hope you guys are being blessed by this I think that this stuff is um I do these videos sometimes because it's not only important now but I see a trend and it's a growing trend this this movement and I think a lot of the people in it are willing to listen and think through the scriptures like this and that this could actually really help them a lot so that's why I'm doing this content it's not for your entertainment sorry I'm not that entertaining <laughs> but I hope I am edifying and I hope I'm discipling uh, people uh, with the scriptures okay so how much of the law did Jesus actually fulfill um, well, the Hebrew roots, again, they're going to say things like, what I've heard, is only parts of the law were fulfilled, therefore the rest is still applicable, the whole of the law is still applicable to us today. Um, and I would say there's a few problems with that. The law was never applicable to, to Gentiles, so they would only be applicable to Jews, we still wouldn't be under it as Gentiles. Um, but Jesus himself, he's like, look, right here in uh, Matthew five seventeen, the context, I have come to fulfill them. The law and the prophets as like a whole kit and caboodle. Like he's doing it all. That's the idea. The law and the prophets as a whole. And I'll offer one more, since I'm just going to beat this idea to death because I think it's really important. I'll offer one more scripture to support it. Um, Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, this is after the resurrection. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then you open their minds to understand the scriptures. So there's a sense in which Jesus is like, there's a totality in the first coming of Christ and even everything in the second coming, it still harkens back to the awareness of Christ, the revelation of Christ, the mystery of God revealed in Christ that Paul talks about um, that we have right there in the first century. The culmination is right there in the first century. I'll give you one, one more verse. Okay, one more verse. This is Galatians 3.19. When Paul asks, why were we even given the law in the first place? And he answers, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. And then there's this word, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The offspring that Paul's talking about is Jesus. He's very clear in Galatians 3. When Jesus shows up, that's the until. The law is added until. And here's Jesus. Now, as you scroll down and you look through um, the same book of Galatians. He says, um, verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. By the way, the guardian is the law. Um, the law, verse 24, was our guardian until Christ came. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. So he's looking at that coming of Jesus as being the transition point. So the Hebrew roots mistake, I think here is saying, oh, when the new heavens and earth come, that's the transition point. That's when we're not under the law. Well, the New Testament and Jesus, uh, Jesus, I should say, and Paul here seem to both be saying that it's the coming of Christ, the first coming, that that transition happens. So let's go back to Matthew 5, and we'll look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does, not, does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Do you relax them or you do them and you teach them? And this will affect what you're called in the kingdom of heaven. Um, Jesus seemed to talk about the kingdom of heaven as being that thing that he was bringing in. But here he is. He's on the precipice of, of, of people entering into that kingdom. And what he wants to do after saying, I'm going to fulfill all the law, is he wants to stop the nonsense of the Pharisees of the time who were redacting and reducing the law, not by stripping passages out of the Old Testament, but by adding so much other stuff to it that you no longer saw the Old Testament. You just saw their requirements and their, their commands. And this is why Jesus is constantly against them, right? 
He's against their, their rules on hand-washing, the, the extra rules, unbiblical rules on hand-washing, unbiblical rules on the Sabbath, unbiblical rules about you name it. And he says all sorts of stuff about them. So he just rips on them. And he's like, look, you need to have the fullness of the law. So by itself, verse 19, you could see this if you wanted uh, to extend the law to all people. But in context, Jesus is talking to Israel, just Israel, who he, who he came to without going to Gentiles. He came just to Israel at first. That, that was the idea. I'll get more to that in just a second. Um, he's talking to them and he's, keep, he's telling them, I want you to keep the purity of the law. I don't want anybody else to manipulate your understanding of scripture here. I want the law to be preserved in all its difficulty, in all of its impossibleness, so that you can see that I am the one fulfilling it. Because if you strip it down, if you water it down like the Pharisees have, you'll think you're fulfilling the law. When you're not, you're just self-righteous. That's, that's the context I see of uh, verse 19 there. Um, so don't relax the law. That's the term. Do not relax the law, verse 19. Uh, that's what Jesus is arguing against. The Pharisees did do this in verse 20. He, he, he rips on them for it. He goes, I tell you, unless your, scribe, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then what he does throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, or at least a lot of it, is he goes and he talks about anger. And he says, hey, you've, you've heard, you know, if you commit murder, you're, you know, you're going to suffer judgment. But I tell you, if you're angry with your brother, you'll be liable to judgment. He goes on and he says, you've heard, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery in your heart. What's he doing? He's saying, you water down the law. I'm going to give you the undiluted law. This is the truth of God's heart for obedience of mankind. Now, is less still wrong? Yeah, less is still wrong, right? There are moral things that are transcending that are true with or without the law of Moses, but they're revealed also in the law of Moses. That's for sure. Um, but Jesus here, do you see what he's doing when he says divorce? They had all kinds of weird teachings about divorce. He says, ah, no, you have some kind of ungodly divorce. You're actually going to lead to adultery. Um, he talks about oaths and they have weird teachings on oaths and he, he talks about retaliation, says turn the other cheek. He talks about loving your enemies. And in this, Jesus is revealing the law gives us a standard that is way up here, a standard that you have failed and I have failed. And Jesus, remember, he started the whole thing with saying, I'm going to fulfill it. You Here's the standard of the law. It's unreachable. Don't you dare water it down, right? I'm going to come and fulfill it. I will fulfill the law because unless you have a greater righteousness than all the guys you're seeing, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus, he's setting us up for the gospel. This is what, you know, we get in the New Testament. We hear that the laws are our tutor to lead us to Christ. It leads us to Christ. But for many of us, we have watered down versions of holiness. Watered down versions of holiness. So we think, oh, when I die, you know, God will know I'm a good person and I'll be fine. But God's looking right at our heart. And he's like, when you stole, when you looked with lust, when you hated your brother, when you retaliated against your enemies, these are, these are all things. When you prayed so others would hear you and not because of me. Um, anyways, we're, we're getting the need for Jesus, man. I need this savior who will fulfill the law for me that I might be free, that I might be saved. So if you want more details about uh, Jesus um, fulfilling the law and how it impacts Gentiles, a lot of that stuff's going to come later because his ministry was not to the Gentiles. And this is a point I want to bring up a few scriptures to make. This is huge. When I'm reading Jesus' teachings in Matthew 5, he is not talking to Gentiles. He's talking to Jews. It's not, it's not after the new covenant. It's before the new covenant. It sets the stage for the new covenant. Remember when Jesus said in Matthew 15, 24, I was sent only 
to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So that when he heals this non-Israeli woman's uh, concern, then he does so, um, uh, her daughter needs to get healed. He does so as an exception to the rule that he only goes to the Jews and not the Gentiles. Remember when he sent his disciples out, Matthew 10, 5? He tells them, um, not Matthew 5, Matthew 10, 5. I read this one earlier for you, but he tells them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he's gonna, they're going to preach to them. This was temporary because in his, in his coming initially, it was only to the Jews, which means the teachings of Jesus are sometimes confusing to us because we forget the context was just to the Jews. The question of how to apply it to Gentiles we need to look to the rest of the New Testament for that, um, for the continued explanations of those things. In uh, Romans 1.16, this is why we get the idea that the gospel comes, quote, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So if you're looking about, like, the question is, how do I apply the teachings of Jesus to the Gentiles? Well, I need to consider how that the church applied it to the Gentiles, how the apostles under the leading of the Holy Spirit applied those teachings to the Gentiles in the book of Acts and in the epistles. We're going to get into that in the next few weeks. Even the context of the Sermon on the Mount, even the Sermon on the Mount, which we've just been reading, the context assumes a purely Jewish audience. Like, look at how he talks about Gentiles. Jesus goes, you know, hey, don't worry about what you're going to wear. Then verse 32 of, of Matthew 6, for the Gentiles seek after those things. Don't be like the Gentiles, right? I mean, if his audience is Gentiles, he's not going to be like, don't be like the Gentiles, you Gentiles. Like, it just doesn't make as much sense. When you realize he's talking to his Jewish audience, they're the ones that have the word of God. They're the ones that have the revelation and the light of God. And he's calling them first to see who he is and come to him. Then afterwards, he sends them out into all the world to preach the gospel. So to conclude, Matthew 5, the passage that we've been looking at, I'll take you there again just so you can look at it. Matthew 5, 17 through, uh, through 19, and really the whole book of Matthew. <laughs> um, the, the, the law was not abolished, it was fulfilled, which does carry a sense of completion or ending and at least potentially changes how we apply something after it's been fulfilled. It, it's, it's, it's not clearly stated, but it's hanging in the air there as a legitimate part of the word plurao, right? Um, the law was not stripped of various commands. This is verse uh, 19, uh, 18. It's not stripping it of pieces of the law, but rather Jesus will fill it, uh, accomplish it is the term. He'll accomplish it in its entirety. So you see the comparison? Uh, not abolished, fulfilled. Not um, stripped of various commands, yachts and tittles, right? But accomplished. And then verse 19, not relaxed, not relaxed, but did, done. <laughs> Dud, I was going to say. So Jesus, he did, he fulfilled, he did them. Uh, that's the idea. Now let's go to our second passage, Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 18. This is the second passage. And this, now, um, remember what they did with this passage was to say, we're going to take the teachings of Jesus and we're going to tell everybody to do the things Jesus taught. But I think I showed that in Matthew 5, there's more going on than that, right? Um, so let's just, Let's just read it again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. To the end of the age. So the Hebrew roots explanation for this was um, that this definitely extends the teaching of Jesus to all people and the Sermon on the Mount is part of Jesus' teaching. Therefore, Jesus wants all people to obey the law of Moses. I would say... 
it, I agree with the first part of that. It extends the law of the teaching of Jesus to all people, but the Sermon on the Mount is a whole sermon. You don't just take one verse out, right? And it's in the context of the full revelation of Jesus. And even right there in verse 17, Jesus is saying the fulfillment is happening right away, not in some great distant time. So three issues I have with their interpretation. One, it seems to miss the full teaching of Matthew 5 about Jesus coming to fulfill the law and, and the prophets. And really it argues against people seeking to lower standards rather than seeking the fulfillment of those standards in Christ, which I hope I explained that in a way that makes sense to you guys. So that's one issue. Number two, um, it also ignores all that Jesus commanded us because if you take everything Jesus commanded, that's what gives us the context to interpret the other things that are there. And then three, uh, that's not how the apostles interpreted Jesus's command. And this is a big deal. Jesus's command to tell all the world, they fulfilled this in the book of Acts and the epistles, but they did not teach people that they were all to obey the law of Moses. I'm making a strong claim there. And what I will do is I'll unpack that. It won't be this week. It'll be uh, next Tuesday is my plan to start doing through, going through Acts. We're going to go through and we're going to look at it and say, what was the place of the law in the early church? And we'll say, yeah, they fulfilled Jesus's command. Did it look the way that you would expect it to look if the Hebrew roots interpretation of this passage was correct. So, um, yes, Jesus fulfilled the undiminished truth of the law and prophets, right? He also, he pointed us to the heart behind the commandment. He talked about anger and lust and sincerity of worship, genuine prayer, trusting in God, seeking God's kingdom over our material needs. Those teachings should all go out and be taught their truths. But that doesn't mean that we're under the law of Moses. Gentiles were never the people before the law were never, and the Bible clearly sets an end point to the law. And that point is the the coming of the promised seed, according to Galatians. Um, let me give you another example of something Jesus taught, since we're to apply all that Jesus said. We're going to look at John chapter 4, where Jesus talks to the woman at the well. Here's another explanation of why we don't take John 5, 19 or, and pull it out of context and use it like that. Um, in John 5, uh, John 4, 19, what we have here is, um, sorry, I was referring to Matthew 5, 19. Um, what we have here is the woman at the well and the question she asks Jesus is really profound because the Old Testament law answered this question clearly, right? The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought, where people ought to worship. So the Jews were like, Jerusalem is the place where God has caused his name to dwell, according to Deuteronomy, right? This is the place. The law is telling us, man, Jerusalem is the place. You will come and gather your people three times before the Lord in Jerusalem, where the temple is, and you will worship God there because that access point is where the sacrifices are, this, all this stuff, right? Jesus, if he was like, all we're going to do is continue the law as is. Why did he answer in verse 21 this way? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. There's something happening. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming. When, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So that it's not going to be about the location anymore. That's, there's a change coming. Jesus is saying, I'm affirming the truthfulness of the Jewish religion. It's right. It's true. But guess what? Something's happening now. And this thing is a fulfillment. It's the hour coming when people will worship God in spirit and truth. There was a proper place. The Jews had it. It was Jerusalem chosen by God. He put his name there. But Jesus is saying something is changing. This is when you bring all the teachings of Jesus in 
and you don't isolate just one passage. Right? When you look at John, we realize we're going to become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, he's going to give us the Holy Spirit. We're going to worship him uh, regardless of where we're at. Uh, that's, that's how Jesus could say this because he was not abolishing. He, he affirmed the truthfulness of, of the Jewish religion, the true Judaism, right? Based upon actual Old Testament truth, not the Pharisaical stuff that turned into modern rabbinic Judaism, but the actual scripture. He affirms that. But what he does then is he says, ah, but there's a fulfillment of something coming. Something's changing. So we also get this in uh, Luke 20, uh, chapter 22, verse 20, where Jesus, he, at, at the time of Passover, he, he takes the cup and it says this, and he says, Jesus says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That should be really profound once we realize the Old Testament meaning of the new covenant. There's a new covenant coming, guys. It won't be like the old one. And Jesus says, here it is. It's initiated. It's in my blood. Jesus's death brought in the new covenant. It brought us into the new covenant. And so that's a profound and really important thing. So there's a new covenant. And then I'll mention this just for fun. Um, we're about to go to your guys' questions here. So John 13, 34, where Jesus also says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. So the law had all these commandments. Jesus could boil them down to the center of the law, the heart of the law, right, of love. But he made just that the commandment that he gave. So this new covenant gives us a new commandment. And the new commandment is to love God, love others. It's love, guys. It's just love. It's self-sacrificial, Jesus-like love. That's the thing we're called to do. And so the rest of it flows from that. We have a new commandment. We have a new covenant. This is, this is stuff that would be... Um, it would be blasphemous if it wasn't true to say such things about the law, about the worship of God, about these kinds of things. So that's the simplicity of the law of Christ. When the Bible is talking about the law of Christ, it's the law of love one another just as I have loved you. That's, that's the law of Christ as, as it is in the covenant of Christ written in our hearts, um, no longer under the law. So we're going to get more into this because there's a huge, huge check on the Hebrew roots uh, interpretation of events. And of the things that we've been reading about when you say we should all obey the law, because when we read the book of Acts, we see this is not the case. So I'm going to tackle the book of Acts. I'm going to tackle next week um, how the Hebrew Roots you know, movement interprets the passages in the book of Acts, especially Acts 10 and Acts 15, the council in Jerusalem. And then probably the week after that, we'll start dealing with the epistles. That's the plan. Um, I'm going to go to your guys' questions now. We already have a bunch of questions loaded up, so I'm going to try to answer as many as I can. Um, and uh, while I'm getting those loaded up, I wanted to, I want to um, let you guys know if you're interested in uh, supporting this ministry, uh, you can go to the video description or just go to BibleThinker.org and you can go to the, the donate page that's on there if you'd like to support this ministry. My goal is that everything I do, all the research and work I do and the teaching I do is free, free online, free for everybody, no paywall between you and the content I make. To be able to do that, I just need a, a certain number of you know people who are like, Mike, I want to be one of those who empowers this ministry, makes it happen. So if, if you're one of those, then you can you can go to the video description uh, and find that donate link, or you can go to BibleThinker.org and you can do it from there. And I thank you. If, if you are enjoying this ministry and you're like, oh, Mike, I, I, I feel bad because I'm not supporting you. Don't, oh, please don't do that. The point is that I can produce a free ministry. That's the whole goal. The vast majority of those who partake of it will never give me anything. And I delight in that. Okay, I'm just saying if it's on your heart, you're praying about it, you think God would have you be one of my ministry partners, then 
then you can check that out. Otherwise, let's just keep making free stuff. Um, okay, so questions. Uh, Briley uh, says, thoughts on someone being messianic that is not Jewish? Um, okay, so if, if this question is about the term messianic, um, I, I don't, I mean, it has special terminology to some people and not to others. In the biblical sense, I am messianic right now, right? Because I believe in the Messiah. Christ is Messiah. This is just the Greek versus the Hebrew way of, so if I'm a Christian, I'm a messianic. That's what I am. So in my mind, I don't care what terminology you use, but I realize that in some groups, there's like special definitions for these terms that goes beyond what the Bible is talking about when it uses them. And in that sense, I can't comment on how they use the term. Um, but I think every Christian is messianic because that means the same thing. <laughs> you know, that would be my opinion. Um, and, and a Jewish, a Jewish person who comes to Christ, they don't stop being Jewish. Um, I like the term completed Jew. I, like, I think that's kind of neat how they put that. So they're a messianic Jew or a Christian Jew. I don't care which term they use. They're both the same in my mind. Uh, to others, they would be more nitpicky about the meaning there. Uh, Sterling has a question. So should there be any differences between the lives of Jews who've obtained the truth and Gentiles who follow the Lord? Um, I think that uh, that's a tricky question, and I probably will try to answer that over the next couple weeks on the Tuesday live streams. Um, I don't think Jews are required to obey the Old Testament law in and of it in, in, in and of itself, like as a whole. But but there is allowance for it, especially if they were raised in it. And it seems like if you're raised in it, if it's part of your personal tradition, you're, then then you're encouraged to stay in it unless it's causing division, which is, I'll get into that in more detail as we go. Um, but yeah, so I, I do think there's a slight difference there as far as how they were raised and conscience and Romans 14 and all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, but that, but missionary work and evangelism should overcome those differences and enable us to transcend those issues. That should be the idea. But there's no difference in fellowship. There's no difference in unity. There's no difference in love and connection. And there's no difference in status in Christ. Um, MBE says, what about the way people are dressing nowadays, women and men? It's like, uh, it is living by the law for asking the brethren to dress with modesty. Uh, no, we have clear New Testament teaching that women are to dress with modesty. Um, we don't have a whole lot of understanding of what modesty ultimately probably is in our culture. Um, I've seen, just, I'll be, I'm honest with you guys. Uh, I've seen girls who they dress very modestly most of the time. And then they go to the beach and they're wearing a bikini and their view is well I'm at the beach now so it's okay you know and I think that if you ask any teenage boys who see girls in bikinis is that modest <laughs> you know what I mean it's pretty obvious to them um so yeah I think that there's there's definitely issues of modesty it's it's our culture's way out of whack when it comes to the topic of modesty um we get really confused about it if you make the issue about honoring God from your from your heart right? Loving God with all of your body and all of your life. If that's the, if that's the beginning of the issue, but if you think of modesty as oppressing women, then you're going to think that sin is somehow liberation and somehow empowerment. And that's what our culture I think has done. Um, and guys should be modest too. Obviously it should be, it should go both ways. Uh, Nathan Rice, uh, Ross, Nathan Ross says, do you believe Jesus always knew he was the Messiah or at some point it was revealed to him? If so, when? Uh, thank you for your ministry. It has been a true blessing to me. Thanks, Nathan. Uh, it really means a lot to me uh, that the ministry has been a blessing to you personally. Um, so I don't, I don't know how to answer that question. Okay, so I know as early as when Jesus was 12, the first time we have him speaking, he's aware of his messianic mission, right? 
he's 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 there at the temple. He's conversing with the uh, teachers and he's asking them questions. And he's which Jesus even at that age he's already asking questions. He was very he was very into asking questions, right? And he's asking them questions, and they're astonished at the at the depth of the meaning that's in his questions, right? Then Mary comes. This is in the Gospel of Luke, I believe. And Mary comes, and she's like, "Where were you? We were waiting for you." And Jesus, he says, "You know, didn't you know I needed to be about my Father's business?" So he's aware of his relationship with God, and he's aware of his special calling in some sense, right? It seems like he's aware of his messianic calling at the age of twelve. Now, can I say what he knew at ten, or what he knew at four, or what he knew when he was one month old? Um, on a human side, a one-month-old doesn't know anything about those things. But Jesus is more complicated than a normal human, right? Because he is God and man. So what did he know? I don't know how to answer that question. I would I would say on the human side, he, he doesn't seem like he could have known it. But does that mean he didn't, in some divine sense, have some knowledge there? Um, I, I wouldn't say that. So there's some things to think about. Uh, Christian Seros says, uh, What is the kingdom of God? Uh, is it a place or is it spiritual? Um, I think that the kingdom of God is a um, uh, a club. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. I think it's more like a club. Um, it's like I've be- I belong to something. Um, I'm part of the kingdom of God. Right now, I'm in the kingdom of God. But his kingdom's not of this world. So the only things that are part of his kingdom right now are the people who belong to him. We're part of that club, so to speak, that allegiance, that belonging. But there is a future time when God's kingdom will come to earth and he will rule and reign on the earth and we will still be part of it. It'll be the locality will be on the earth now, though, and not um, and not uh, sort of spread out like it is at the moment. Um, so I like to define the kingdom this way. My definition, if you take the word kingdom of God and you look throughout the scriptures and ask, if I can have a consistent interpretation of this phrase, what would it be? I would say the kingdom of God is wherever God is ruling as king, wherever God is ruling as king. And Jesus initiated it by bringing uh, the law into our hearts, by giving us the Holy Spirit, and God is now ruling as king in us. And he will come back and he will bring back his global rule on the earth. So the kingdom of God will be, um, will be where, you know, it'll be of this place, although this place will be quite different. Um, the gentle reptile says, uh, what does it say? Why does it say that sin is lawlessness in 1 John 3, 4? Um, I dealt with this in my video on uh, the Hebrew Roots Movement, the first one. But 1 John 3, 4, um, it says sin is lawlessness. That word doesn't mean law of Moseslessness. It means you're without, you're not following what God's telling you to do. That's what it means. You're, you're uh, anamas. That's the word. Namas, law, right? Ah, ah is the negation of, so it's the negation of law or of commands. Um, so First John goes into great detail talking about what commands we're called to obey. And it says, even in First John, that we're called to follow Christ's new commandment to love one another. And so those who are not walking in that commandment are walking with, without God's commandment. They're not walking in love. Um, so read First John, the whole thing in context, I think it's pretty clear in the passage that that's uh, not referring to the law of Moses, unless you assume law always means law of Moses, but it doesn't. Uh, Christopher Roach says, what culture does the New Testament say that a new convert should adhere to if they all come from and followed, if if all they came from and followed was hostile to Christ? I'm not sure. I'm so sorry for Christopher. I'm not sure if I understand your question. Sometimes I just have a hard time understanding a question. Um, I would say that um, when it comes to give you something that might help when it comes to culture issues, how I interact with my culture, 
I would say I am above all else. I am in the culture of Christ. I follow Christ to the T, no matter what, no matter what happens, no matter who doesn't like it, no matter who disagrees with me, no matter what it costs me, I will follow, I will follow the, the law of Christ. I will, I will seek holiness and love and obedience to Christ and the Lordship of Christ in my life and to cast off sin and to follow him entirely. Wherever my culture disagrees with that, I reject my culture. But in unrelated issues like style of clothing, unless it's immodest, right? Like, um, like language and speech and things like this, it's fine to reach out to your people and be all things to all people in that sense. That's totally fine. The food you eat, things like that, as long as you're not compromising your walk with Christ, those elements are fine. It's when we allow culture to bring sin into our lives. Um, Jesus put it this way, uh, you're, you're in the world, but don't be of the world. That's the idea. Uh, Shannon Matson said, I commonly hear Hebrew roots, specifically 119 Ministries, refer to Acts 15.21 as a justification for Gentiles keeping the law of Moses as they hear it preached each week. What do you think of this? I will answer that in detail next week, Shauna. Uh, I will go into it in detail, I promise you. So please wait until then because I'm going to go through the whole Acts 15 council and we'll talk about that and we'll deal with their interpretations. And if I have time, I'll even pull video clips from them to play and respond to. Um, Taylor says, uh, I've seen your videos about slavery in the Bible and servitude. Despite the, this, despite this, a law allowed one to beat a slave or servant at all seems immoral. How do you explain it? Um, well, the, okay. So Taylor, the, there's no law that says it's okay for you to go and beat somebody. That's not quite how it works. Um, but there is a difference and this, I think I'll acknowledge right there. There is a difference. Um, between our culture and their culture. Uh, in our culture, we think it's even wrong for parents to spank their children. Now, I think that that's foolishness, right? Abuse is different. I'm fully against abuse, right? Abuse is a whole different kind of thing. But is all, we use the word beating. Beating has a pretty intense meaning to us in our modern culture that it didn't necessarily have to everybody back in the day. Uh, but also, what if I said spanking? Okay, so is spanking always violently wrong. Uh, I don't think so. I think that that's not the case. I think the Bible and the Bible definitely doesn't share that worldview. It doesn't share that worldview that, that children should be unpunished or you should only ever talk to them. Don't have, don't give them like some sort of extreme consequence for what they're doing. Uh, but abuse is completely off the table. That's a different issue. And that's what, that's what, uh, Leviticus does. It says, Hey, you kill your servant, you get the death penalty. Okay. That's, that's called human rights. Okay. You, um, you, you cause them sort of serious injury, serious injury. Like you knock out a tooth, you damage an eye, they go free. So they're liberated. They're free. No matter how much they owed you, that's a protection for the servant. Um, but was there a time when they could use corporal punishment in an appropriate fashion, or at least in what they thought was an appropriate fashion that was not abusive? Um, yes, that was allowed. I think our culture, um, we are, we are, we're overly sensitive to those issues, in my opinion. I think this is where our culture is wrong. Um, so I know I'll, people will misunderstand me there. There's probably more I could try to say to balance out everything I'm saying here, but that's the main points. Um, Hager Vids says, do you ever have plans being a special speaker around the States? Um, actually, Hager, personally, um, if, if I travel and speak, which you know is a possibility that I'd have to do that um, in the future, but if I do that, I don't get to spend all the time studying. Um, I have to spend a massive amount of time preparing this stuff. I can't remember everything. I have to really dig in. I have to go at it every time, full bore, and spend a great number of hours preparing each message, and I'm trying to give at least two a week. Um, so that's that's my full-time schedule. If I travel around and speak a lot, then I won't be able to do that prep, and then it will hurt this online ministry. And I think I reach more people online than I would if I traveled to churches or other places. So I do that a little bit, 
but not much. Um, and maybe God will change that in the future, but that's my current, current season. Um, Seeking Truth says in Malachi 1.11, are heathen and Gentile interchangeable? Um, well, let me just pull up Malachi 1.11, and I may or may not be able to answer that question, but I'll just share it with everybody. Um, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. Um, For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So I don't know what translation you might be referring to. Mm. Is it, perhaps there's a translation here. The New King James puts Gentiles here and it has nations here. Did, does one of them say heathen, perhaps? Um, yeah, I'm just reading the different translations here. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know. Gentile is uh, uh, like goyim. It's, it's just referring to nations other than the... the uh, the Hebrew ones, I, I would, the Hebrew one, I would think that heathen tends to have more of a negative connotation about worship, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, question number 12. Surely the Hebrew roots movement aren't unaware of scriptures like Romans 2.12 saying that there are obviously not some, obviously some not under the law in the New Testament. How do they explain sweeping under the rug? Um, Romans 2.12, how do they explain this one? I haven't heard all their explanations for every verse. Um, for those who say that the law, everybody's always known the law, um, I don't know how they would interpret this, because it seems clear that they that there's who those there are those who have not known the law, and that they're still under a under a, an accountability that's revealed through conscience, according to Romans two and three. Um, so I'm not really sh- I don't know. Good question, Nikki boy. I don't I don't want to pretend to answer it though because I don't have their answer. Okay, I'm just going to do uh, one more question. I know we've got more. We've got several more, but um, I don't want to go too long and my brain starts to turn into to putty after a while. So Josh Sawyer says, is everyone who never hears the gospel destined for hell? Can someone come to saving knowledge of God because of his law being written on their hearts and revelation of God in creation? I think the answer is going to be no and yes. But... What people do with that information is they often take it and they use it to preach some kind of universalism or some easy peasy like, oh, don't worry, everybody's going to be okay in the end. I still think the way is narrow and few find it, you know. I still think that's the case. That seems to be the case from scripture. But I have a teaching and people ask about it all the time. So I don't know if one of the mods, if you guys could throw that into into there. You already know what I'm talking about. The What about those who never hear the gospel? Pardon me. What about those who never hear the gospel? That's my teaching online. And I go through a bunch of scriptures systematically establishing how to answer your question, Josh. So I encourage you to check it out. Look at that. Um, I put a lot of work into that. I I think that um, it's uh, consistent throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, and that it will answer your questions in detail. Um, Okay, I'll do a little bit more. I'll do a little bit more. So I got Jekyll and Hyde as a question. Atheist here. Do you have a response to Digital Hammurabi's rebuttal of your tire prophecy argument or Topologia's video about possible chain of events to explain the resurrection data points? I don't think I've seen Topologia's video about chain a chain of events. Um, here's the, okay, so I, I do want to do eventually a response to uh, to uh, Digital Hammurabi's video, but uh, some of the stuff that he's getting into, it's it's. Let me put it this way. 
one of the things he's going to he's going to base his argument on is the idea that Ushu and Tyre um, have specific identities different than what I think they have based upon ancient historical records. Now, I have found some ancient historical records that seem to refute what Dr. Josh Bowen says here, but I haven't made a video on it yet because there's a lot more work that should be done on it. Another one of his points is about um, how the word uh, many is used in Ezekiel. And these are like the two main points he has, but because they're nuanced and thoughtful and because they deal with like deep historical research issues, I haven't had the time to get into it. So I haven't done a full response. I obviously, I think he's wrong. <laughs> I think he's wrong. But I apologies video, it, his stuff, in all honesty, he pauses me every five seconds. He says something snarky and attempts to refute things and implies things and stuff. And it just ends up being, I'd have to have like a three hour response video to that. Like my thought is to you guys, um, if you're going to watch videos back and forth, oh, Mike did a video, they rebutted it. Your job is to sit down and write out my points and write out their points and ask, did they really answer each other's points? And your job is to figure out if it's rational and reasonable. But for like Apologia, his content is so snarky, it's so much mockery, and it's so much selective use of uh, large amounts of data. I'm gonna pull little things out and I, I just, I feel like I don't have time for that, um, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I don't wanna I don't wanna laugh it off, but, um, for instance, Apologia did a video where he says that um, my my case for the apostles being willing to die for their account of the resurrection. He says that, oh, this will be our last question for tonight. He says that the case for the apostles being willing to die for their belief that Jesus rose, it doesn't work because we don't know for a fact that at the last moment before they died, they were given an option to repent and give up Jesus and reject the gospel. We don't know that they were given a chance right at the last moment. I think that is obviously ridiculous. Like if if you think we need to have that to know that they were sincere, because that's the whole point, were they sincere? Then you're being silly. You're being silly. You're ignoring, you can't see the forest through the trees. In some cases, they may have had that. They may not have had that. The point is they were willing to repeatedly put their lives in danger and at risk of death because they sincerely believed in the resurrection of Christ. Um, so should I do a whole video on that? Should I do a whole video analyzing and taking apart every single point he makes? Um, well, that's fine. I can do that. But then I won't be doing this video and I won't be doing next week's video because it just takes time. So there's the deal. Um, there's just too many people trying to refute me for me to keep up. You guys are welcome to take over for me and go find someone refuting me and, and deal with it. And if you think they had valid points, then you can send those to me. Um, but I don't think the existence of a refutation I haven't responded to is that significant. It's your job to consider these things, think them through. And obviously, someone's coming against the word of God in scripture. Um, uh, there's you know, God's going to win. <laughs> it's God's going to win in the end. So, um, thank you guys so much for being with me. I, uh, I just, I pray that this content blesses you. I'll dig more into this Hebrew root stuff. If you feel like I've got something off, I'm absolutely willing to listen to that. My main points are what I'm interested in. If you want to refute me, talk about my main points and not every side little issue that you can think of. That's, um, there's a term for that. What do they call it? I forget what they call it. Yeah. Cameron Bertuzzi knows the term for that. He told me it's Fisk. No, I don't know what it's called. Anyway, so, um, yeah, next week we'll do that. Also, coming up, I have an interview with Jonathan McClatchy coming up on Thursday, Friday. I think it's Friday. And I'll put up a, a notification for it where we're going to talk about the cumulative case for Christianity. So thank you guys so much for being with us. And if you're part of the Hebrews movement, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this video and think these things through. I think that perhaps there's just been a misunderstanding of the scripture. 
that, um, and that will become more and more clear, hopefully, as I keep making these videos in this series. 